All right. So Acts chapter 4, 32 through 37. Here it says this. <clears throat> now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind or soul. And no one, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great powers, the power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this passage. God, I thank you for your word and for our brother Barnabas. And Lord, the example of the kingdom of God at work. And so God, I pray that you would encourage us today. God, that you would give us clarity. Uh, Lord, give me clarity as I, as I speak, as I preach, Lord, here this morning, that your words would, would ring out. Lord, that we would hear and, and observe and, and live and experience your kingdom, your radical kingdom that is that is characterized by radical love. Lord, fill us here and open up our eyes and our ears to see and perceive. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Maybe seated. I didn't grab my coffee because my throat is not wanting to cooperate. <laughs> there we go. Got to get Jesus' drink. Coffee. Coffee, coffee, coffee. All righty. Well, what would you do if you, like, somehow, like, if you won or were given or, you know, came into or inherited a million bucks? Think about that. Think about that for a minute. I always think, I always kind of, you know, love to experiment with that. Like, oh, what if I, even like, you know, Dave Ramsey'd and he said, like, if you retire and you do it right, you could retire with over a million bucks. Like just by putting, I think it's like 50 bucks away a month since the time that you're like 25 or 30 or something like that with, you know, the compounded interest and everything, like having a million bucks to retire on. That'd be nice. You know, what would you do and what would you spend it on or what would, how would you, how would you, you know, disperse it or invest it or whatever you do? Think about that. Think about where that would go. Think about what that would be. Because here's the thing, like, you know, in the church, there were, Back in, these, in the church in the early days, there were people that were wealthy. And there were people that were dirt poor. Right? Yeah, growing up, I mean, I remember we, my family, we survived because our neighbor owned the local Taco Bell. And they went to our church. And so every Sunday night, they would bring home a big 10-pound bag of, of ground beef. Of, of, just, of just, you know, ground beef. Raw ground beef that they used at Taco Bell. And they just brought it home from the store. And they would take out one pound for their spaghetti that night. And then they, they would give us the rest of the nine pounds. And that's how we survived. We, so we had a lot of hamburger helper. I'll tell you what. You know, lots of spaghetti with lots of meat in it. You know, and so lots of, lots of cheeseburgers and everything. But, you know, but it was just you know, this growing up with, without much, we learned how to make a dollar stretch to as far as we could. Right? Seminary. I ate terrible. I got up to like 300, 320 pounds or 315 pounds or something crazy, you know, because I was the master at the dollar menu and that stuff is not healthy. <laughs> and so, 
you know, when you, when you live on a, on a budget, like there's, you value things differently. You value food. You value shelter a lot differently. And then when you, when you see someone else in, in need, we see, we see that, the, the, you know, the church, I mean, back then, this was a very agrarian society. So they grew all their food, you know, they, they would partner together. Um, and so it was a much different, you know, type of society. They weren't necessarily as, um, as invested in money and, and monetary things. They were much more in, interested in how was the crop going to be the next year? You know, how is, how is the next, how are the herds going to do this year? You know, would we have enough lambs that were born this year or have enough cows, you know, calves that were born this year to sustain us for the next year, right? And so they're always praying for harvest. That's why so many different faiths, even including the Jewish faith, were rallied around, you know, praying for a good harvest or celebrating a good harvest. That's what Sukkot was all about, was celebrating the good harvest. It was at the very end of the harvest season. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the prayer for the new harvest, that they would be, you know, that was the very, the very beginnings of the harvest season. And so everything, we're thinking about this, like what are the three things that, that we need as people? Shelter, food, air, air <laughs> and water, relationships, people, family, connection. We, I mean, statistici- statisticians and psychologists have been, have been studying this and saying this for at least 10 years now, that mankind needs people, needs, needs other people as much, if not more than they need physical sustenance. Because you can be homeless and starving, but if you have, if you have relationships, you're much more happier. And even if you're hungry, you're not starving. Like they talked about, they, they did this whole like interview process of homeless people in America and they interviewed homeless people in Calcutta, India. And people in Calcutta, India, because they established a community outside of Calcutta, were much happier than homeless people in America because they were much more of a, this is, I'm going to protect me and my stuff. Don't you touch my tent that I found on the side of the road because it's mine. You know, versus over there, they were, they were sharing everything. They shared food. They brought food together, what they could scrap together. And they would share a meal together. They had friends. They, they watched out for one another. If you have friends, if you have people, if you have family, if you have relationships in your life, it's more important than if, even if you have food on your plate or a roof over your head. Radical love is manifested when we encounter the kingdom of heaven. That little instance, you know, the little picture of Calcutta and, and relationships that are formed, we're going to be looking more and more into this radical expression that's talked about in our passage here today. All these different things, they're all together and, and one heart and one mind, and no one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but instead held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on all of them. But I want you to see that, that first line, the entire group, ah, the entire group, this entire group, which is the kingdom of heaven. When we encounter the kingdom of heaven, the presence of God's Holy Spirit, a place where God and his word are being lived out, it, what it is resulting That's the manifestation of radical love. Radical love embodied in a radical kingdom. 
Let's look at that word radical. I love that word radical. Radical. Now, there's even a book called Radical. And it made me feel so bad, you know, for so, so many years and made me super, feel super guilty that I wasn't just like going off and spending thousands of dollars to go on these mission trips overseas and everything. But this word radical, what does it actually mean? And here's, here's the, the definition that I, that I could put together between, between all the confusing definitions that it talks about in the dictionary. Advocating for a thorough or complete change or shift from a root or core moral or value and establishing a new root core moral or value. This is basically just, it's taking the moral or the, the pillars of, of either your life or an organization or a, a community and in essence tearing them down or seeing them transform into something new. This radical shift, this radical change. I mean, because you think about it, a radical, what are they trying to do? A radical extremist, what are they trying to do? They're trying to tear something down and build something new, right? They're trying to establish something new, new pillars. That's what this, the, the theologian Ravi Zacharias said back in the 90s that our culture, basically, like the, 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 this radical. Um, group of people in America are basically trying to tear down all of the moral pillars of America. Patriotism, the Constitution, freedom, and trying to like replace it with a completely radical left ideology. But basically what what he was saying is they're trying to tear down all of the moral pillars and replace them with nothing. Creating a moral vacuum. Basically, like, again, going back to Judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But it's interesting, like, to see how these things have shifted over the years, specifically in the church. You know, like we talked about a couple, what, a couple weeks ago, you know, John Wycliffe and John Huss, you know, both guys that were, that were radical in that they wanted the people to read the Bible in their own language, to read the scriptures for themselves. And up to that point, for what, about 1,500 years, well, ish, 12, 1,300 years, um, they, you know, the Catholic Church had, had restricted it to only the priests or bishops could read the Bible for themselves. But now, because of their work, John Wycliffe and John Huss, and guys like Martin Luther, we've got this. We have the Bible in our own language. You could be killed for this in the 15th century. If you, if you possessed one of these, you could be drug out in the streets, this would be burned, and then you'd be burned at the stake alongside of it, using this as tinder for you. Because it was translated by heretics. We're just talking about the word heretics. You know. Heretics. Is, but to possess a Bible, you were a heretic. But then think about like other people who, you know, so that was a core issue, that the core pillar, trying to establish pillars of grace versus works of the law, versus works of Christian law from the Catholic orthodoxy. But here's, the, here's kind of the original, original ones were Jesus and the apostles, right? The early church were radicals. They're in the face of this temple, this edifice in the, in the priesthood. They were coming in and tearing everything down. And saying, salvation is by grace, not by works of the law. We don't have to go and, and, and worship Moses. 
We don't have to go and offer sacrifice, which that, to speak against the temple was an executable offense. That's what they kept trying to stir up you know, in, of, you know, for Jesus. They kept trying to say, oh, he's speaking against the temple, saying he's going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days. So he's threatening our temple. So threatening the edifice and the, and the sacrificial system, saying we're not going to do this anymore, was heresy. Another heresy. Heresy! But to them, it was radical in that you could be killed for speaking against that. You could be killed for encouraging a fellow Jew not to offer sacrifice because you believe that Jesus was your ultimate sacrifice. And you no longer had to sacrifice anymore. That was radical. Today, what does radical look like today? Honestly, shift. Radical, you know, the shift is, is, you know, like we said, like thinking about church differently. That's why we talk about shift as in shift. You're thinking about how we do this thing called church, shifting our mindset, shifting into relationships, shifting into community, what shifting everyday ordinary relationships into authentic community to live God's adventure together fully alive. That we're not, you know, consumed with like Jewish doing all these crazy programs and outreaches and stuff like that. That's weird. Other, other, other churches like C3 down the road. They're radical. The table. I mean, that's, that's kind of where we got our, my encouragement to go ahead and sit around tables. This local church, Cody was just here this morning, got to hug him and say, hey, and, and, and everything. Like he, they're doing radical things. I mean, he's writing his, he wrote his master's thesis. I'm sorry, his doctoral thesis about the culture of the table. About breaking bread with one another, discussing the Bible with one another around the table, sharing table fellowship every week. Honestly, and another thing that's radical today, that's still going on today, that happened started a week and a half ago, is the revival that's breaking out at Asbury University. Thousands of people in te- have been coming through, and, and I think it's Knoxville, Tennessee. I think, I think so. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, maybe, or maybe in Kentucky. I don't know. Google it. But Asbury, Asbury University is having a breakout of, of revival. They started a, like a Tuesday morning chapel service. It hasn't ended. And people have been coming from all over the world to catch the fire, to go and experience it. I saw a video of a lady manifesting a demon in the middle of a, of a gathering and they, they brought her out to the, to, the, to the aisle and they were praying over her and casting the demon out. And it was like it, 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 the demon cried out and, she was, and then she woke up and she was delivered. People were coming to faith in Jesus. I mean, professors at Asbury saying, I've never experienced anything in my life like this before. I, when I walked into that room, I felt a sense of godly peace that will stick with me for the rest of my life. It is earth shaking. It is monumental. It is a radical movement of God. Radicals. Something, the only thing that we can really kind of see during Jesus' day that was radical was this, was this community in Qumran. So during for the, the Qumran community, uh, the, these, this group was called Essenes. E-S-S-E-N-S-E-S. S-C- no, no, not, not another S. E-S-S-E-N-E-S. <laughs> Essenes. So, because there were four major groups during the time of Jesus. There were the, the Pharisees, of course, the Sadducees. And then you had the Zealots that were the patriarchal, you know, patri- patriot, 
you know, nationalistic you know, Israelites that were trying to literally fight, kill, murder the Romans to get them out. And then you have the Essenes, which are the super radical religious folks that were down. They lived down by the, down by the Dead Sea in a town, little town called Qumran. And this is where, if, you've, if you heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is where they were created. This is where they were written. This, they, what they did was they transcribed the Bible. So all the, the copies of, of Scripture that were in the temple and the synagogues came from Qumran. They actually would, would hand write, because they didn't have the printing press or anything. They would hand write. They would hand tra- transcribe the Bible. And in 1948, I think it was, and I think they, were, they came out in 1952, they actually released the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found this, like shepherd boy, found them in a cave. He was throwing a rock into the cave and heard a, you know, and went in there and, and found these big you know, clay jars containing all these scrolls from the first century A.D., from Jesus' time. Because it existed, I think it was about 100 years before, and it existed, I think, up until about 100, 150 A.D. So it existed for about a you know, couple, you know, couple hundred-year span before it was destroyed by an earthquake. Um, but they transcribed the Bible. They, they practiced baptism on a daily basis. This is where John the Baptist, actually, in their, in their ledgers, there's this guy named John, and they believe that it was John the Baptist was a, was a member of the Qumran community. And this is where he got his baptism, full immersion baptism, for the cleansing of sin, the cleansing of the conscience, which he brought to Israel, to the Jordan. And this was the baptism that he was, that he was preaching. And so he, they would go in and they would, they, would be, they would baptize themselves in order to come out and be clean enough to touch the word of God, to touch the scroll to write it because they didn't believe that they were, they were clean until they baptized themselves. And then they, they cleansed themselves to be, to be worthy to touch the Bible scrolls. Yeah. Cause even the, the, you know, even the priests, they, they didn't, they didn't even touch the Bible. They didn't touch the scrolls. They have, they have a little, even still today, they have a little, you know, stick with a little finger hand that, that you, they used to point. They don't even touch the scroll. They're that religious. <laughs> <coughs> <clears throat> but not only did they find these 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 uh, scrolls of the Bible, like they found an entire roll, the entire scroll of Isaiah that was a practice scroll. It had like all these different like scratched out and like you know corrections and things like that. It was like a practice scroll by a new guy, a you know, new guy. But they also had all these scrolls describing the community that they shared, the radical community. They practiced this radical community. They called themselves the covenant community. And they were led by the teacher of righteousness. This, is this guy that they were talking about this was their leader. This was the ancient ideal of Israel as God's covenant people, as though it was coming true from all the promises of Scripture. They're trying to live them out. Um, and they shared their possessions. They brought everything and they owned nothing. And they just, you know, they owned nothing and they were happy. <laughs> They just kind of hung out in this in this town that they built. They didn't have any possessions of their own. That's why that's why John, you know, went about in camel skins and you know eating honey and wild locusts. Right? He had nothing. Um, but it's interesting to see that the new covenant, the new covenant, they believed. You know, this this we talk about you know this new church that's being being established in the book of Acts in these first few chapters of Acts. The new covenant. They believed that God had established the new covenant through Jesus Christ. 
not through the 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 you know the religious and relentless you know works work based i have to live right i have to do right if i have you know if i'm sinning i have to get right they saw themselves as as the fulfillment of all the new testament promises living them out through the fulfillment of jesus on the cross that they didn't have to work to accomplish the promises that god had accomplished the promises and they were simply living in them and enjoying them. But oftentimes, I think in the church, so, so often we hear that we have to do this and you have to do that. I've heard so many sermons about this passage alone by saying, see, you need to give to the poor. It's all about the poor. For some reason, God's only about the poor. Has nothing to say to the rich. Has nothing to say about encouragement. If you're not giving everything you own to the poor, then you're a bad person. And I kept thinking, like, what if I am the poor? <laughs> Do I give to myself? There you go. But they believed that the, they were living in the fulfillment of the promises through Jesus Christ, that they didn't have to work to accomplish the promises, that they were the, prom- the promises of the Old Testament, of, of the first covenant, we're all about the life without the work. The life where God has done the work. Where God has accomplished the work on our behalf. They saw themselves as the true covenant community in whom God's covenant promises were coming true. This is what we were talking about in Isaiah 61. Jesus declared this. He said, I have come to teach good, preach good news to the poor, right? To declare the year of what? The Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. Now, what is that? Let's look at Deuteronomy 15. It says, this is is for them, this is what they were supposed to live out as 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 Israel, which they never did. At the end of every year, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how to cancel debt. Every creditor is to cancel what he has lent his neighbor. He is not to collect anything from his neighbor or brother because the Lord's release of debts has been proclaimed. You may collect something from a foreigner, but you must forgive whatever your brother owes you. There will be no poor among you. However, because the Lord is certain to bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, if only you obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow every one of these commands I am giving you today. When the Lord your God blesses you as he has promised you, he will lend to many nations. You will lend to many nations, but not borrow. You will rule many nations, but they will not rule you. So this is what it was with these years of, of Jubilee. Or the, the, I'm sorry, these Sabbath years. These Sabbath years were supposed to entail the forgiveness of debts. And then every 70 years, right? No, every 40, I'm sorry, every 49 years, I misspoke. Seven times seven. Every 49 years, it was supposed to be a, a year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. This great year where not only are debts canceled, but all slaves are set free. All land that has been sold because of a debt or sold off for profit is returned. Is returned to the family. Like if we're suffering and I have to sell a piece of land because I, I need to afford to live, that land comes back to me at the end of 49 years. Again, Israel never did this. 
literally never did this. That's why they were in exile for 70 years. <laughs> because God said at the, end of, at, the, at the beginning of the exile, I will basically like credit to your account. I'm going to take these years from you that you stole from me. You stole these 70 years from me by not observing these, these last however you know, 70, 49 years. And so I'm going to send you in exile and let the land rest like it was supposed to. But now, but now all the fulfillment of these Sabbath years and the years of Jubilee, the years of the Lord's favor, for them, they were being forced through slavery and exile and death. But now the promise is being fulfilled through the goodness and the pouring out of God's favor on us. Not by any work that we have to do or things that we have to, you know, what is it? Like, what does it say? Like to, if you obey the Lord your God and, you know, you will have, have all these things, be careful to follow all these commands. That was, de- they were, it was de- their blessing was dependent on their work. Ours is a gift by grace. Like, what does it say in our passage here? By grace, you know, for, and great grace was on all of them. The church is the new covenant community that God had always intended to establish. He wrote all these things about Sabbath years and years of Jubilee to show what the community of God would be like, to show what the covenant community was going to be like. Radical acts of love, radical generosity is meant for the church. Because think about, look at uh, this passage. What does it say? With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was all was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds that was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and distributed to every person as needed. But this wasn't like they sold their house. It was like, okay, I've got this extra house over here, so I'm going to sell it. Even, I'm not going to give up my house. Like, I'm not selling off my, my business that I have to live off of. You know, I'm not going to sell off the house that I live in and be homeless. That's not what God's saying. He's saying that they were selling off the extra and bringing it together. Um, but the church was experiencing the jubilee of God. The year of the Lord's favor, the joy that God intended for his people. He was offering it to Israel. He had offered it to Israel time and time again over 2,000 years. And they rejected it every single time. God was like, no, no, no. I've I've got a plan. It's coming, it's going to be good. It's called the church. This is where the Spirit of Yahweh was poured out on all those who believed and were baptized. And they, you know, this, is, this is the image that we see of the cross, is that all debts were forgiven. All of your debt, when you came to faith in Jesus, when you professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and were baptized in His name, when you pledged full allegiance upon the name of Jesus Christ, all of your debt was canceled past, present, and future. 
The entire record, even the whole, you know, the, the booklet that could even carry or that someone could write your debts into, Jesus took and he threw it in the fire. No one can bring an accusation against God's elect. No one can write down something because there's no book to write it down in. God has forgiven all of your debts, all of your sin. His grace is sufficient. And so our faith isn't about trying to work and, and do all these things and be careful to obey and all these th- different things. It's about enjoying the presence of God. It's about enjoying the presence of the Spirit of Yahweh in us and among us. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. Grace is experienced. This is the new covenant, the bride of Christ on display. While think about this, like they're here, they're in the temple courts preaching Jesus and, and the new king, living the new kingdom of God. Everyone's there and joyful and happy. And right behind them is the temple and all these people going into the temple and every single person who walks through those gates walks out empty. Because A, the Spirit of God never came back into the temple after it was destroyed in, in the 5th century B.C. until Jesus came. And God's presence was there in the church in Solomon's portico. It wasn't in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't even there. The Ark of the Covenant was never restored after it was taken. Since that day, and especially since, which we'll read about in the, in the coming weeks, when the church was expelled from Jerusalem, was expelled from the temple, God's presence never returned. And then of course, then it was eventually destroyed in AD 70. But here's an interesting, interesting thing. I, don't, I think I may have ta- taught this before, but so the tradition set, you know, has it to where as soon, you know, during, during this time um, when, when Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose again and he ascended and the church was established and they were kicked out. Since the time of Jesus, there were a couple things that, they, that, um, that changed, which is interesting. So every, um, every Yom Kippur, I think I talked about this when I, when I taught the Yom Kippur the the the, uh, the festival series um, every Yom Kippur uh, they would take a ribbon and tie it around one of the goats so they would sacrifice one goat for them to go into the temple and they would have the, the scapegoat that they would lead out into the wilderness and that and they would and basically like when God um, forgave their sins there was a second ribbon that was tied to the door of the temple and when it turned changed colors. I think it either changed to red or it changed to... I think it was, it was red. It was a crimson cord. And when it turned white, it was a sign that God had received the offering and forgave their sins. Since the time of Jesus' crucifixion, you know, death, burial, and resurrection, the cord never changed colors. And... The, the, so they would, they would you know, they had the two, the two goats in, you know, in front of them and they would cast the lots for them to see which one was going to be sacrificed and which one was going to be the, sca- the scapegoat. And then the one, I believe it was the, the one who was going to be the scapegoat, don't quote me on that, the one who was going to be the scapegoat always fell to the right, which was apparently a bad omen for them. 
So since the time of Jesus, the, the lot always fell to the goat on the right and the cord never changed colors, signifying that God had completely abandoned the temple worship, completely stopped forgiving their sins. Their, sin, their sins are still upon them. And especially now that there's no temple. But so basically what we're seeing here is this is becoming the true assembly, the true temple, the true place where God's presence lives. And the, and the temple building behind them was simply a sham. It was a, a pretty, just simply a pretty building, a facade. He gave the church a culture. He gave the church commands. The one command, there's, there was, there's two commands that Jesus gave to the church. Number one, that you believe in the Lord God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. And two, that you love one another. Jesus even said in John chapter 13, He said, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This love was why everyone knew where the church was in the temple court. The people were filled with joy. The people filled with with happiness and gladness and love for one another and service to one another. That's where they saw the love of God being made manifest. I mean, that's the whole reason why we have 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But 1 Corinthians 13, where do, where do you, what is, what is this chapter? You remember? Love. The love chapter, right? Where do you hear it read all the time? Weddings. weddings. That's the only time you ever hear it read, is at weddings. And wedding, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love is slowly lose, losing your mind. <laughs> right? Oh, I'm going to put this on my wedding. It had nothing to do with romantic love. It has nothing to do with a bride and a groom. Well, sort of. It's all about love in the church. Because it talks about spiritual gifts in chapter, four, chapter 12. And the very beginning of chapter 13 is, if I, if I prophesy and can have all words of all knowledge and have all wisdom and do all these things and heal people and do all these miracles, but I have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. I am a noisy symbol or a gong. Nothing that I say matters. Nothing that I do. No miracle. No, nothing that I try to do for God matters. Then actually you may, may as well not even do it because it doesn't matter. Because if you don't love, it, matter, it doesn't matter. Love is the core this whole, I mean, he spent an entire chapter on it. Right in the middle, he's like, make sure you don't forget this. Yes, we're talking about spiritual gifts and how to, ma- how to manifest them and how to control them, how to make sure that we're organized. But right in the middle, don't, don't forget this, guys. Do everything that you do out of love. This passage is specifically descriptive, not specifically prescriptive. Is showing us a picture of what love looked like for them. This is what love in that culture looked like. How they lived, how they lived, 
how they manifested the Holy Spirit, how they manifested the love of God in the community of Christ. Now, this is not a command. That's why I said there's a difference. There's descriptive where it's just simply describing something versus prescriptive, thus saith the Lord, do this. This is describing a move of God. Think about this. Is, you know, think about this. This is kind of what's going on in Asbury right now. I've been I've been hearing this more and more. It's like people are seeing the the re- revival in Asbury, and people are like, "We need to plan that here. We need to do that here." I'm like, "No, you don't, because they didn't do it. God did it. You cannot manufacture a revival." You cannot create a revival. All you can do is pray. And when God show up, shows up, you can do your darndest just to simply hold on and hang on tight. You cannot create revival. We cannot create the culture that God wants. All we can do is simply ask God to reveal it and walk in it when he reveals it. That's why I wrote out a prayer to a group that I'm a part of. I said, I am sensing a need to protect the movement of God from false revival, to maintain the purity of these movements of the Holy Spirit, to pray for these outbreaks to continue, and that the assignments of those who would distort or attempt to capitalize off of these and to use them and abuse them, steering them away from God, would be canceled and thwarted. We don't want manufactured revival. We don't want revival birthed out of jealousy or a need to be the hot spot. We want a genuine move of God. We're hungry and thirsty for the real deal, not plastic fruit. We want God's culture, you know, kingdom culture. We want to walk in that, live in that. And like they said, you know, being of one heart and soul did not simply mean that they didn't disagree or you know, when they had disputed matters. They, were, they weren't uniform in their opinions, political or economic, on everything. This meant that they, what this meant, being of one mind and soul, meant that they regarded each other's needs as their own. Versus like, oh, it's not my business. No, it is, because they're your brothers or your sisters. And when my sister is, has business, it's my business, because we family. The kingdom of God is characterized by radical love manifested through radical generosity. So the question is, where's our treasure? Don't store up, you know, this is, Matt, this is Jesus in Matthew 6, the, end of the last end of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon, possessions. Where's the treasure of our lives? Where's the treasure in our church? Where do you invest? Here's the thing. 
when I when I was getting started with Dave Ramsey, the first you know first thing very first thing I did was I sat down and looked at the last three months of my budget of of I'm sorry of, of my bank statements. Where did my money go? Lots of Taco Bell, Jack in the Box, Burger King, McDonald's. <laughs> Realizing all these the places where my money went, and then realize then you set your budget based on that. You don't change things yet. You just simply set your budget. Here's what I spent each month average. And I'm going to set my budget by that. And then I'm, I'm going to plan and adjust things as we go along. Same thing with your time. You can take, your, take the last, you know, take an inventory of your time from the last three months. And it shows you where you spent your time and where you want to budget your time in the, in the beginning, in, you know, going forward. So the question is, where has your treasure been? Because you have to know where your treasure has been. What have you been investing your life in? Emotionally, monetarily, time. In order to tell your, your money and your time and your heart, your emotions, where to go in the future. Where is your treasure? Where has your treasure been? We have to ask ourselves that question. Where's, our, where's my treasure been? In order to say, where do I want my treasure to go? What is the heart? What is the mindset I want to have? Because when we don't see growth in a certain area of our lives, it's often because our treasure is in the wrong place. When I see that I'm not losing weight, that I'm not healthy, that I'm not enjoying life, that I'm living in depression and anxiety because I'm eating all this crap food, sitting at home watching crap TV and binging Netflix until I go to sleep every night, it's no... Yeah, I wake up and realize, oh, no wonder my life is crap because I've been filling it with crap. Where do I want my life to be? Where do I want the treasure to go? How do I invest my treasure in heavenly places? How do I get spirit healthy, emotional healthy, mental health, and physical health? (coughs) It's... Devoting our treasures to where the the treasure properly needs to go. But here's the thing. The whole point behind this whole thing, behind this morning, is that radical love is manifested when we encounter the kingdom of heaven. So our treasure is for the people of God. How do we invest in in the kingdom of heaven? This is the kingdom of heaven. This is how we invest in you know, our treasures in heaven. That's what, that's what the whole thing is talking about. It's not just like this ethereal, oh, I'm just going to place my trust in Jesus. No, it's actually putting it somewhere. Putting your treasures, putting your time, your monetary, you know, you know, time, money, energy, emotions, your body, you're, you're physically showing up for the church. Giving our offering. When I started to budget things, that was the very first line that went in my budget because I had not been faithful. Pretty much my entire life up until about three years ago. (laughs) But then I saw God bless. And this whole thing isn't about money. It's not about, you know, the the whole concept, I've heard this preached so many times. It's about money, it's about money, it's about money. No, it's not about money. It's about flourishing the kingdom of heaven here, now, today. 
So that when people on the outside see, like they, like the people in the temple courts looked over and saw the church laughing and singing and praising God in the corner of Solomon's portico, they saw God. They said, wow, I want that. What's going on over there? Why are they laughing and giggling so much? Why are they celebrating and singing so much? Why are they dancing? All it took was going, someone going over there and, and saying, hey, what's going on? Oh, Jesus. Jesus is good. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross and was buried, but rose again. And he sent his Holy Spirit and he's the one who's making us all joyful, all giddy. The church, the kingdom of heaven is where we invest our life. Because this is the only kingdom that will last. America's going to go away. This world's going to go away. Russia's going to go away. China's going to go away. Belgrade is going to go away. The state of Montana is going to go away. Even our physical families will go away. But the family of God, the kingdom of God, will never go away. The gates of hell can't prevail against it. We are the eternal kingdom of God. What better place to invest our lives? Relationally, financially, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, investing in the things of God. That's why he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all the rest of these things. Everything else that God knows you need, He knows you need shelter. He knows you need food. He knows you need air. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, His way of living. And all these things will be provided for you. We don't worry about our lives. Yeah, we try not to. But we've learned, we've listened to all the wrong sermons from the world around us saying, freak out, Get, make sure you got insurance for this and this and this. We are the, I, we, there's so much insurance in this world for everything. Because they're without hope in this world, because nothing lasts. So, how can we see God manifest this radical love as we encounter? the kingdom of heaven, as we invest our lives in the kingdom of heaven in one another. Remember, that was the, the, two, the two things that he, he commanded. Believe in the Lord and his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Be devoted to one another. Show up for one another. Be faithful to one another. You might annoy the crap out of each other, but love one another. Listen, forgive. Engage, ask questions. Be at peace. As long as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And there's a lot more that, we, I mean, that's, there's a lot more that we can go into and talk about that, but the, I want us to make sure that we understand that radical love is manifested when we encounter the kingdom of heaven here at Shift Church. So pray and ask that. How do we live this kingdom of of God, the way, truth, and the life today? How can we live that out today? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. I pray, God, that you would show us your kingdom. Show us your goodness. 
Show us the love that you had for your disciples and that the, had, the disciples had for one another that we can participate and cultivate here at Shift Church, God, and in the, in the, in the church in the valley. God, I just pray for your blessing. I pray for your promises to be fulfilled here among your people. God, that this would be a place of love and generosity, that the kingdom of God is made manifest here where brothers and sisters are willing to serve one another over and above our own needs, knowing all full well that you'll provide everything that we need for this life. Because your word says that you did. You, you, you have supplied everything that we need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. So God, teach us and show us what that means for us today. Encourage us, Lord Jesus, this morning. In, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.